With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome inside to this edition of the Sunday Pod with Alex Garrett. As you know, I like to break up the talk show old ways of having the same faces on every station meet the press uh, face the nation you know all the big news talk shows on sunday and have voices that aren't being heard in the mainstream circuit heard right here and one of them is actually a former white house speechwriter you've heard him before michael johns is back with us michael you were the speechwriter under hw bush and and now you're following trump so closely first of all Another great week of rallies. Well, give us your thoughts on the week that was with President Trump comparing to the Democrat debate. Well, I think coming out of the failed impeachment effort, uh, first great to be back with you, Alex. Um, he's he's had you know probably two of the best weeks of his presidency. I think um, what's been clear is that his popularity among American people has been stable. His favorable numbers are, you know, in that 49, 50% range, which, by the way, a lot of people say, hey, that's really low, but pretty comparable to where Obama was, frankly. Uh, but unlike Obama, as you point out with these rallies, the supporters of Trump are hugely passionate. They're hugely engaged, um, like our Tea Party movement and kind of building, I think, on our Tea Party movement. He has brought people into the political process who have not felt really an avenue to, you know, for expression or for engagement um, historically. So I have said repeatedly that I believe this man has saved the Republican Party, which was really starting to become more of a, a geographically uh, centered party, you know, strong in certain areas of the country, but completely irrelevant in others and has uh, in so doing, I think, uh, saved the country from what would have been four years of incredibly radicalized and highly politicized uh, governance. Uh, I think his candidacy going into uh, November looks very strong, but these are always very difficult elections for Republicans. I mean, you know, you do you go through this electoral college math, which um, I've spent a good amount of time with, and it's it's uh, you start out just challenged. You have you know, 55 electoral votes in California, I believe. New York's at like 29. Illinois is at 20. That's, you know, sort of 80, you know you're, at 100, you're over 104 uh, just with those three states alone, which um, I don't hear anyone saying are really in play. But the good news for Trump is that his popularity in so many of these states have been historically considered swing states. 
is immensely strong. So, you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, these are states that um, I think he's poised to to win. And I think that in winning that, the electoral college math and, in fact, surpassing his numbers from 2016 all come together. You know, we can't say it enough how not only has he brought people into the political process and just in the Republican Party, and I'm kind of mainstream, common sense, like, I don't identify as Republican or Democrat. I just say, what's the common sense goal here? And I think Trump finds that more so than any other on either side of the aisle, to be very honest with you. But he's brought in people who might be like me, independent, not affiliated with the party. But he has a message that's telling minorities, hey, you don't have to listen to what the Democrats are telling you. And as you know, I don't know, I know we're friends on Facebook. You know, I rollerblade in New York City on one leg. And so because I'm quote-unquote a minority i think people wonder why i i side with him but it's because he's bringing everybody in with common sense ideas yeah you know all the way back um into the 80s the republican party had talked about its outreach into these communities but it never really had a brand that resonated its actions never seemed to really match its rhetoric um i was critical throughout that period that we were not doing enough, that this was absolutely illogical, that we would have sizable demographic blocks of our country that would just vote in unison for the Democrats who seemingly did very little for them. I mean, the cities they've managed are a complete mess, for instance. And, you know, what I like about this president is I think he's put issues at the forefront of his policy agenda that were not really being previously discussed that are central to the success of the American working class. So what he's done in uh, addressing, which he's not done with yet, there's a lot of work yet to be done, but you know, in addressing immigration, which really no president has tackled in our adult lifetimes, about border security, overstate visas, these illogical uh, H-1B work visas that are used to displace American workers, outsourcing, and then obviously these um, incredibly flawed trade agreements that we've just allowed to sort of endure into perpetuity and re- overhauling those. And then, you know, doing what he can do to appeal directly to the African-American community and address policies, not just rhetoric. I mean, the criminal justice reform initiative that he took is the most broad, sweeping, and and um, influential criminal justice reform also of our adult lifetimes. And the statistical numbers from the standpoint of African-American and Hispanic uh, unemployment and, and wage growth are um, explosive, impressive, unprecedented. And so he has a very compelling uh, record that he can communicate. And so it's not just... A, a, a rhetorical appeal for these votes, but it's an actual communication of here in three years are tangible things that I did with, oh, by the way, Democrats largely opposing me on every step um, that to help you in your um, uh, families and your respective um, uh, challenges and issues. Well, let me ask you, so, and, and you were a speechwriter, but see, I always say why can't I always believe that the disabled community and and the communities of the minorities, instead of saying me me me, if you want to be part of the community, 
you have to think about the better of the country, don't you? That's just how I feel about it, and everybody else seems to think differently. At some point, maybe it doesn't happen in our lifetimes, but at some point, the ultimate success in these areas will be that we stop talking about communities and we start talking in terms of how is the country doing and that we're able to do that credibly because there is no disparity between what one ethnicity or one gender or any other demographic segment is is doing. I think we've made progress in those areas, substantial progress in our, our lifetimes. The big issue continues to be um, in my view, the, the issue of the American cities and the fact that they have proved to be so utterly failed uh, on education, on employment, on economic uh, productivity, on crime. You know, they've really, in some cases, become absolute wastelands. And, you know, the one thing, if you look at every one of these major urban areas that we're talking about, particularly the worst ones, the one common denominator throughout throughout all of it is they've been governed by for 30, 40, 50, 60 years by Democrats. Right. Now, so, so it's not just an issue of bad policies, but it's an issue of not having any political competition. So it's very easy for these incumbent Democrat mayors and city councils basically to stop even thinking that they're working for the people of their cities and to get ingratiated in all of these fringe uh, progressive ideas and, and things that have no tangible relevance to working uh, people of their cities. And, of course, inspiring everybody to work is, is a big thing in my playbook as well. Now, Michael, you, are, you were a speechwriter for HW. So tell me, in his speeches and his rallies, it seems that those behind President Trump are really doing a good job at sewing the message up for him to deliver, wouldn't you say? Speechwriters, I, I think they've done a. I think they've done a very good job, but in, uh, no, a very unconventional job. I support the steps that he's taken. I mean, I think the idea of the traditional White House press conference was becoming increasingly absurd. They were just becoming uh, opportunities for these obscure White House correspondents to engage in you know, lengthy diatribes and confrontations with uh, White House press secretaries and not really designed to you know, identify news, as it were, but to engage in opinion journalism. And uh, I think, that obviously, you know, the biggest thing that's been talked about is that the president has um, is communicating more directly with the American people probably than any president in our uh, adult lifetimes in social media and being able to, to express his opinions directly to them without the media filter. And um, while that's disliked by some including apparently some in his administration. I, for one, am a huge fan of it. I think it leaves, you know, very obvious and clear what his positions are. I think it um, it gets people closer to him, allows them to feel some proximity to what's going on in his mind and what he's thinking and what his direction is. And net net, I think it's been in the, it's it's been a huge positive for him. Um, so those are. You know, we have a president who's more engaged in managing White House communications than a typical president has been. 
um, that's usually been you know sort of outsourced to communications and uh, media relations and speech writing staffs, and, well, and they may be uh, less formalized, I think, in this particular White House than they have been in, in, tra- in traditional ones, and in I think, previous ones. And I think you and I laugh because they say, oh, no press availability. No, The guy's on the front lawn almost every day talking to the media Absolutely. wherever he is, and it's that kind of direct contact. Look, no one had a problem with, uh, who was it, fireside chats. No one had a problem with this. All of a sudden, this is a problem. I don't get the double standard here. Yeah, it is. It's a complete double standard because when you look, the email Obama would do all these individual interviews with fairly obscure local markets, but, you know, not a whole lot of um, White House press conferences. And when he did do those, they were... Um, not, you know, really filled with inquisitive pressing or confrontational questioning. Um, this president, you know, is addressing the media pretty much, as you say, on a, on a daily basis. He's been, I think, the most accessible president to media. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of confusion really about where he stands on things. I mean, he's communicating that all the time directly um, through his his own communications vehicles and indirect and then indirectly through uh, media outlets. What's happened though, and part of this is is the blossoming and evolution of American media, and part of it is Trump's particular style, is that the traditional uh, monopoly that that the, that the major media White House press um, core has had on communication on communications related to the president has been diminished and that has been, um, you know, pretty aggravating to them. And it has it, it and sort of sense. There's been a sense of entitlement, frankly. And of course, you know, well, yeah, because they were entitled to know he was going to Afghanistan. He couldn't surprise the troops on Thanksgiving. Like this is how it's insane. It's right. gotten to be honest with you. Uh, and you know, I knew there was going to be a, uh, an, a very big bias amongst the media when the crowd sizes at the inauguration was the first big issue they took to task in the presidency. Meanwhile, for four years, I didn't even ask follow-ups about the Iran deal. So you knew when they were focusing on a minute issue, but we're not pushing back on, uh, on Obama's press secretary, uh, Josh Ernest, you knew there was going to be some problems given by the media this term. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you, I haven't seen any formal like studies of this, but that first 24 hours, if you compared coverage to the, the, the content of his state, of his uh, inauguration speech, which was uh, filled with a lot of substance about what he was committing to do for the country, to the discrepancy over how many people were actually there. And let's just face it, it was packed. I don't know the exact number. And this has always been an issue. It's been an issue with rallies I've spoken at in D.C. too. They're not particularly good at estimating crowd sizes um, formally, but it, it you know it almost doesn't matter. It was it was a very very packed um, day. I was I was in Washington D.C. that day for that, and um, that entire uh, mall area was uh, was filled with people. And it was, and they will be again, I believe. Uh, a year from less than a year from now, uh, and now I gotta ask you this: so, not only the inauguration, but then 
this year, Pelosi rips up the speech. Now, you guys take a lot of time to make those speeches happen and, and craft them and whatnot. And she just ripped it up. And I'm sure as a former speechwriter at the White House, you were very ticked off. And as an American, you were ticked off at that. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, it was and it just showed, I think, the desperation and rage that characterizes the modern Democrat Party. Uh, there were so many um, components of that very well done State of the Union speech that, you know, I think should have been embraced by Pelosi and um, congressional Democrats. And it was, an, it was a sign of immense respect both to the president, more importantly to the presidency, and to the process that's existed. So, you know, and I think it was also a disservice to the many individuals who the president correctly highlighted right. in that, uh, you know, in that speech. You know, I think of um, uh, Stephanie and uh, Jamia Davis, the, the Philadelphia uh, student who was uh, seeking the tax credit for the scholarship, and with Juan uh, uh, Guaido, the, the opposition leader who's the de facto president, legitimate president of Venezuela, right. who had been there, and, you know, the, the Army staff sergeant. The 100-year-old uh, Tuskegee Airman. I mean, all these different stories that were highlighted. Paul Sami, absolutely a uh, great example. Um, yeah, the Tuskegee uh, Airman, um, uh, you know, it, it was just uh, Rush Limbaugh, obviously, uh, facing a serious uh, cancer uh, diagnosis. And it just, the whole totality of that approach just seemed to me to be um, very disrespectful and very unbecoming. And I can't imagine that it was well-received by any centrist voter in the country. I, I would think not. Now, you know, yesterday, this is going to air on Sunday, so yesterday, talked with uh, a Franciscan brother who was singing to the homeless here in New York, very positive, very spiritual. And we didn't bring up Trump, but I just feel like everybody always says, Michael, let's look at the bright side of life. Well, the minute you try and mention Trump, they don't see a bright side. What is their issue? Why can't they acknowledge one good thing he's done? Uh, because I think he is, um, as I think our Tea Party movement has, uh, broken down some of the power paradigms within modern progressivism and the Democrat Party, which frankly haven't delivered for the American people. You know, we very patiently gave Obama eight years. He couldn't he couldn't produce one year of three percent GDP growth. Um, his job creation was hugely unimpressive. Uh, our trade deficits rose on his watch. Our uh, national debt doubled on his watch. Um, every metric through which you would have assessed the success or failure of his presidency more or less ended up in in worse condition than it was before it started. Um, and so I think along comes this very unconventional political figure who resonates with what has historically been part of their base, particularly working Americans, union workers, uh, people who work with their hands, blue collar workers, uh, vastly, as you pointed out, growing numbers of African-Americans and Hispanics. Trump did better with those, those communities than either Romney or McCain did. And I think he's going to do better in 2020 than he did in 2016, perhaps 
sizably better. They're looking at it as they always look at it, exclusively from a political perspective of saying, geez, he is, he is eroding our historical political constituency and how do we survive this? And by the way, this is basically the problem. I'm not trying to just pinpoint this on on Democrats because, you know, it's existed within the Republican Party establishment too. It's like, how do we get beyond this issue of one party winning, one party losing and start getting public servants, politically elected individuals, political constituencies to celebrate American victories and to rally the country behind addressing its challenges. And I think Trump, to a large extent, has done that. You know, we forget, because it's, it's been a few years, but not too long. But, you know, if you look at the, the candidacy in the primary that he ran in 2016, and I endorsed him, as you know, on day one, June 16, 2015, he ran against the Republican Party establishment. His victory... Um, in that primary and ultimately securing the Republican Party nomination was a victory over the Republican Party, not by the Republican Party. And so he's been a transformative political figure, in my judgment, certainly the most influential Republican since Reagan, and increasingly an argument can be made that he's been even more influential than that. Well, yeah, and as you're talking, I I was also wondering your thoughts on the on-the-ground Democrat that seems to eat up everything the media is saying. How did the media get the the regulars, the everyday people, to just be miserable every day? It's really sad to see. Yeah, well, I think um, you know, I started I started my my heavy-duty political engagement in um, the 1980s when the economy. Uh, was struggling in a lot of respects, but if you compared it to where it was in the late 70s with stagflation or Jimmy Carter, it was moving generally in a positive direction. Inflation was coming down, unemployment was coming down, uh, the country was starting to get its footing back, and yet the inclination of the major media, and this was in the back in the three network days, was always to sort of find and highlight these individual cases of people struggling. And no one denied that those cases existed, but the broader trend of the economy was completely ignored. Here again, I think this is the case, but they're finding increasingly difficult to identify examples where we've had you know, a country that is moving pretty closely toward full employment. And not just that, but for the first time really since the turn of the century, we're seeing impressive um, movement in wages, which, by the way, is a product of starting to control immigration, you know, and trying to, to, you know, essentially offer working Americans an opportunity by not over flooding our country with surplus uh, labor. And I just, you know, I have these Gallup numbers. These are now a couple weeks uh, Ago, but you know, if you look at some of these figures, this is January 17th to January 20th. The movement of the American people and their viewpoint about the direction of the country is overwhelmingly positive. The economy, their viewpoint on the economy was pot in January 17 when Trump came in was 46 percent positive. It's now 68 percent positive. That's a 22 point leap. Wow. Uh, our our how we're addressing terrorism on a global and domestic level was 50% positive when Obama left. It's now 68% positive um, under Trump. Military preparedness, 66% positive January 17, up to 81. 
uh, percent positive uh, today. That's a 15 point lead. And here's what one that really impressed me was race relations. We're routinely told by mainstream media that somehow this president is an a um, alienating or um, uh, combative um, president who is in increasing. Uh, racial tensions in the country, just the opposite, according to um, the perspective of the American people. Only 22 percent of American people had a positive feeling about race relations in the country when Obama left. Despite all of the rhetoric of what he said he was going to do back in 2008, despite the beer summits and all of these mm-hmm. symbolic things, only you know a little over one in five people felt positively about it. That's jumped to 36 percent, still entirely too low in my judgment, but that's a 14-point leap on President Trump's watch in how the American people perceive race relations in the country. The American people believe race relations in this country uh, are improving on President Trump's watch, period. That's factual. That's documented. That's the most respected polling agency in the world. Well, and, uh, and those polls will continue. By the way, the one you mentioned where he had that jump after impeachment, 38 to 44. That was a Washington Post, I, I, I say it correctly, Washington Post poll. So uh, even those that follow the Post seem to be thinking Trump's been doing pretty good in the last couple months. Now, Michael, I wanted to play you this other, because in addition to the economic growth, the killing of terrorists, he's really tapped into one other frustration I think Americans uh, are having where bureaucrats are telling us what to do. And you remember the Eddie Gallagher case after that, Trump did this and he said this at the rally um, following Eddie Gallagher. And I think you'll uh, appreciate it. And I think you'll understand. And maybe the listeners will more so that this is why Trump won in 16. And so, I don't know if you heard that clearly, but he's saying these bureaucrats who sit upstairs and air conditioning offices, they don't matter to me. And that's what the American people really voted him for because they saw the waste that was going on in each department. And Trump's vow to get rid of that waste. Yeah, so, I mean, my reaction there, it's kind of twofold. I mean, on the positive side, and it's a huge positive, he's correct. He's absolutely right about that. Uh, you know, many of these <laughs> individuals, uh, I can remember being a political appointee in, in the Bush administration, you would have career officials who literally did nothing. And then you would have to have political appointees who would basically watch these individuals who everyone knew were doing nothing just to make sure they didn't do anything that was usually dangerous or damaging to the administration and to our federal government. Now, you know, let me be objective about it. Because has everything been president? Has everything been perfect the last three years in this administration? It hasn't. One of the things, and it is the biggest thing in my judgment, that this president's got to get his arms around is the fact that, as great as his vision is, and as great as his personal capabilities are, as unmatched as they are, um, meaning if you're going to negotiate some a deal or something like that, he's the guy you would send into the room. If you're going to communicate a message. He's the guy I'd feel most comfortable doing it. Despite all those facts, it takes an entire federal government aligned with your agenda to be successful. And when you put into an administration individuals who were very outspoken 
and uh, engaged in opposing your candidacy during the primary or individuals who historically have been part of the very swamp you're trying to drain or you leave vacancies or you leave worst case scenario Obama holdovers who have a completely contradictory agenda, you're going to hit a lot of bumps in the road and you're going to hit a lot of roadblocks advancing your agenda. And I think uh, from the leaks to the um, some of the, the, the representation he's received in these legal cases with, I don't think, uh, necessarily, ju- uh, uh, you know, federal um, attorneys arguing these cases with sufficient diligence or passion, because they, they themselves don't believe in it, to uh, individuals who have uh, done very little to think of and support in creative ways, opportunities to advance his agenda. This administration, three years into it, continues to be, you know, lar- you know, largely filled with a lot of these individuals. And I think, you know, just on the uh, director of national intelligence appointment this yeah. past week, you know, following it and starting to say, well, do you, maybe he's starting to get his arms around the fact that this really takes an army of individuals in your administration. I mean, when I, uh, you know, in the Bush 41 administration, on the day of, of, of uh, Clinton's inauguration, everyone knew it was time to go. I don't even recall there being much of a conversation about it. I mean, every political appointee who was appointed by President Bush left the federal government that day. Um, when uh, uh, Obama arrived, every George W. Bush appointee knew it was time to go for the most part. Right. This is the only administration that kind of let a lot of these guys hang around. And a lot of them are still there in major policymaking positions. You know, we make a lot about uh, the Midnight Massacre, where, where they, uh, what Tom, what was it, Thomas Jefferson, I think, or whatever they they left the night before you know like before midnight or whatever. We all thought that was a bad thing. Now we think it's a good thing, and I, I kind of like that change. Well, this whole yeah, the whole Ukraine impeachment effort. And in some, in a lot of respects, the Russia impeachment effort too. When you really break down and say, "Hey, what was behind this whole thing?" Because we had an entire Mueller investigation, over thirty million dollars, a couple dozen highly politicized Hillary Clinton aligned attorneys who, you know, two years into it, conclude there was no collusion between the campaign and Russia after distracting the country with the, the proposition that there likely was or could have been, uh, and, and the and the Ukraine thing. Uh, which amounted to really nothing. Uh, we um, didn't hold up the aid to Ukraine. Ukraine never did any favors for the for the president, or um, never uh, delivered on any of these investigations that were speculated about. We still don't know what Hunter Biden was doing with this company Burisma, for the most part. So. What was the basis of all of them? The basis of all of them were individuals in this administration, particularly in intelligence uh, and national security functional roles, who were Obama holdovers still in the administration, who were raising these objections internally and were sophisticated enough to know how to navigate the federal government, including involving the Department of Justice, including involving the whistleblower process, to call national attention to two things they presented as being both criminal, impeachable, and even traitorous that amounted to nothing. 
Right. Yeah. And yet there's still not been accountability for those individuals. And by the way, Um, Michael, what I'm trying to get through my audience is that, and maybe you can help me, is that, hey, guys, your party also enlisted foreign intelligence against Trump. So you're just the pot well, calling yeah, the kettle black. Exactly. Well, it's not. It's not also. It's pri- primarily that's what happened. I mean, the entire both of these cases were examples of, I think, in what psychiatry you call projectionism, which is attributing to someone else the very attributes that you know are inherent in yourself. So we allege, or the allegation is made, that Trump's campaign is colluding with Russia. When, in fact, it was Hillary Clinton's campaign that went over, retained a British intelligence uh, official to go to Russia to put together this fake dossier, then to leak it to media and hand it to the the Department of Justice and initiate this entire investigation. That's essentially what happened. Well, if that's not Russian uh, collusion and Russian engagement in this electoral process, I don't know what what is. I mean, if it were not for Russia's engagement in this investigation, the investigation itself would never have been launched. It was on that basis that the Carter Page uh, surveillance warrant was actually issued. So you say that's Russia. Yep, uh, Russia was, you know, a, a force, but it was a force on Hillary Clinton's side utilized by Hillary Clinton personnel. Then you go to Ukraine, and you take just that um, speech alone that Joe Biden gave at the Council on Foreign Relations, yep. where he talks about terminating the prosecutor that, that at the time had begun an investigation into his son, Hunter Biden's affiliation with Burisma and to several other components of um, Burisma's corruption. And him boasting that he went over there and said he was not going to release this aid until that prosecutor was fired. And, you know, sure enough, he, as he says, they fired him. And the I idea mean, that's not even conjecture. That's not even conjecture. That is like right there on the record for anyone who wants to reveal it. And there's a lot of speculation. And I tend to agree with it that the Ukraine investigation was designed not just to put the president on defense, but to prevent this Justice Department and this administration from beginning to do the logical work of saying, hey, what did occur here? And was there criminal activity or was there an undue level of uh, pressure and a quid pro quo exerted by the Obama administration, not by the Trump administration? Right. And and to top that off. So, yeah, the reasoning is, they they gave was because he was a, a corrupt prosecutor. So you wanted a prosecutor to come in to actually investigate your son. Like it, the whole logic they tried to defend that was ridiculous. It just was bizarre to me. Well, I still think the question remains unanswered. And why is it unanswered? It's un, it's unanswered because once you put the president on the defense on the very issue that that warranted investigation, it it looks incredibly defensive. Um, and combative to come back and make the same allegation of, you know, the, the people that are making it. And I think, you know, so to, the, to an extent, the progressive left in this government is and continues to be a tad bit more politically sophisticated than um, our Make America Great and Tea Party movements have been in uh, in tactics. They have no ideas on policy, in my judgment, 
They have no real solutions for this country. They've been afforded the opportunity to try to solve some of these problems, and they've been universally uh, uh, unsuccessful. But what they are very good at is working the machinations of the federal government and both destabilizing and stalling initiatives that are counter to what the American people want and uh, to what this president wants. And just finally, I mean, I pointed this out a few times. I think I was one of the few few people to do this, but I actually, uh, you know, we went through all of that Ukraine investigation, Alex, and I wanted to sort of, I made a decision. I said, let me look at it dispassionately. Okay, because I'm a Trump loyalist, I'll be honest. I'm day one, like I said, supporter, endorsed his presidency. I've defended him in some of the most bleak moments uh, because I believe he's what our country needs. Mm-hmm. I said, let me just look at it without any political lens on um, and see, you know, is there anything that adds up here? And I started to look at, you know, the, most of the, the witnesses that they called were in that, that closed door basement where they issued um, depositions. And most of the depositions never saw the light of day. Trump wasn't allowed to call any of his own witnesses. They weren't allowed to be counter um yeah, um, questioned with um, the um, uh, with Republicans, uh, so it was a one-way conversation. But then, when you look at the public dimension of it, and you say, "Well, who do they actually bring forward to make this case?" I started to go through it. You know, Ambassador uh, Taylor, who was yep. ambassador to Ukraine, yep. said he could not identify an impeachable offense. Uh, yeah, George Kent, he, he's the Deputy Assistant Secretary, was I believe it for Europe and Eurasia said he never spoke with the president of the United States. These are the people they're bringing forward. It's Fiona Hill from the, from the NSC. Right. Said couldn't, couldn't remember, couldn't recall uh, Trump ever saying anything to her about Ukraine aid or anything related to it. Yet David Hale, who's one of the most uh, important political figures in the state department under secretary for uh, political affairs, said he was unaware of any, any nefarious activities, um, in the Ukraine dealings. This Colonel Vindman, who was like their main star witness, all right, who's subsequently been reassigned within the government, correctly reassigned, should have been reassigned on day one, in my view, because when you really dug down to what was the basis of his, his objections, it looked to me like he was, he didn't feel the president had any role involved in, in his issue of, of, of Ukraine. But even with what he said, he said, no basis for any allegation of bribery, which would rise to high crime and misdemeanor. Ambassador Volker, who was the ambassador to NATO, clearly said uh, four words. There was no quid pro quo. Right. And then the one witness, finally, that I thought held any credibility because he was actually on the call, Tim Morrison from the NSC, who handled uh, Russia and and some European-related security issues, said I was on the call and there was nothing wrong. So you have... On the fact, witnesses alone, if this were, say, a, a criminal case, just nothing that adds up to anything. This would be dismissed on summary judgment in any court of law. And then, of course, the four facts that are indisputable. Number one, um, Adam Schiff gets up and misrepresents the nature of the call between President Zelensky and President Trump. Right. And the president, to his uh great credit called him on it and releases the transcript. Nowhere in there is anything that is even suggestive of a quid pro quo. 
the media questioned Zelensky and say, hey, was there any quid pro quo? He says no. Trump says no. Then you have the aid released. They say, well, the aid was delayed, but it was released within the time frame allocated. Right. And then finally, you have, as I pointed out, this issue of, well, what did Ukraine do to get the aid? It turns out nothing. No, I mean, really, it's just an absolute national distraction about a non existent scandal. And sadly, um, we have to allocate, as you and I are doing right now, time to defending the President of the United States on this issue at the expense of advancing his agenda. It's been an immense disservice to the country over the last three years. And I hope every Republican who goes back to their district, whether they're challenging or running for reelection, is going to point out that these do-nothing Democrats have had nothing on their mind the last two years but, but obstruction, resistance, and trying to sell this impeachment lie to the American people. Uh, Michael, where can people get this rundown of the Ukraine te- testimonies? Uh, did you put it in writing? Where where can they find it? I ought to put it in writing. That's a good suggestion. Let me take that to note. Um, you know, I think that's um, um, you know that's worthwhile. I had to probably put some article on this before it's uh, the whole thing swept into the dustbin of history. But you know these. Um, Core witnesses that the de- these are Democrats who brought them right. forward. These weren't witnesses for our side. None of it added up to anything. And you just saw a shift sit there throughout all of it. And, and I could go on with it. I mean, remember he promised repeatedly, right. we're going to hear from the whistleblower. You'll hear from the whistleblower. Then all Never of a sudden, happened. the hearing starts and he says, well, I don't know who the whistleblower is. You know, and of course, that was we all lie. kind of knew who the, we know who the whistleblower was. Not only do we know who the whistleblower was, but we know the whistleblower had been had a history of partisan engagement with Biden and with congressional Democrats and had met with Schiff's office. Um, and, uh, you know, Schiff really has been, I think, throughout this whole thing, one of the most disturbing figures. And it, most concerning to me is you could take a lot of the comments he said in isolation, particularly during the Russia investigation when he said he had indisputable evidence that he had reviewed that showed there was no doubt collusion between the Trump campaign and the government of Russia in the 2016 election. Right. I heard that. Even I heard that. And I said, wow, you know, I'm not reviewing the classified material that he's reviewing. I can't sort of wait to see what this is. I always had in my mind that he was politically spinning it. It wasn't politically spinning. It was completely contrived. Right. And to have a senior member of, you know, a ranking member on a House Intelligence Committee like that come forward and lie to the American people. And and even to this day, no one really circles back and with them and says, well, what were you talking about? My suggestion is all over now. It's all over. Uh It's all over now. There's no need to conceal any facts. You said you had this information. What was it? Because. Right. We we had the highest level, most grandly detailed investigation into this president on this issue that you could ever have imagined. Millions of documents produced, dozens upon dozens of individuals involved, interviewed under oath, and uh, into any even individuals uh, put into cooperation agreements with the federal government on it, and they had. Fact, you know, factual, indisputable conclusion that there was nothing to it. So, what was he talking about? And what were these other, you know, congressional right. Democrats talking about? 
uh, what was Pelosi talking about? I think right. they need to be held accountable to the, the, the fact that they misrepresented to the people they serve, the American people, what actually was transpiring. And Michael, I would say, I would say Adam Schiff should just have stuck to being a, a screenwriter in Hollywood. That would have been a better job for him, yeah. in my opinion. Now, one last thought on all the, all the weekend. Uh, Nevada happened, and um, <clears throat> I don't even know how important that caucus is for this, but but I do know this. Just know that thousands, a thousand votes were already voided before the voting even started. Michael, I just think they're rigging it one step at a time, and they don't want to admit it. Well, people have different views of the, on these caucuses. Nevada, of course, is a caucus state like Iowa was. Um, the Iowa uh, caucus was fundamentally flawed in a whole bunch of respects. Um, and by the way, it wasn't a particularly complicated undertaking. We, we asked the Democrat Party of Iowa to, to count, you know, I think what ultimately was under 200,000 votes throughout the state. Um, and they couldn't do it in a timely and accurate fashion. And now you have these questions that are already emerging on the Nevada caucus. And I think it's going to ultimately prove to be the end of the caucuses if you're not able to resolve this. And a lot of people think that's probably a good idea. But, you know, there is kind of a role for the caucus historically in American democracy. I mean, it shows a lot of grassroots organization. I've always liked that about Iowa, that you can't go in, for instance, in that first primary state and just blow the state up with national with uh, statewide television ads and win. You've got to get around that state and you've got to meet and get to know voters. And it's a very large uh, state with, with a very diverse range of issues that it's confronting. And that always gives candidates like real roll up your sleeves engagement in, in actual democracy in my viewpoint and um you know in nevada now you have these uh, processes being called into question and i think ultimately it's going to turn around and say you know that we can't we can't do these caucuses we need a more traditional voting approach and then of course the bigger concern beneath all of it is we continue to have a democrat national committee that absolutely despises Bernie Sanders does not want him as, as um, at the head of the ticket, believes he's going to be completely destructive for down-ballot um, votes for uh, congressional Democrats. Uh, and set aside the fact of whether that's true or not true, the role of the Democrat National Committee is not to be taking the place of Democrat primary voters and determining who the nominee is. In a lot of respects, particularly in allowing Hillary Clinton to lend all that money to the DNC in the 2016 election, and now again in the way they're handling the 2020 primary, it, you know, it appears yep. that they, yeah, they are not. Yeah, I mean, making the rules to allow Bloomberg to appear in that Las Vegas debate the other night. Um, you know, just for starters, as one of a whole series of examples that are emerging, it's it's clear that they are prepared to change their rules in at any given moment to allow what is politically expeditious or politically convenient to them in um, achieving what they want to achieve, which, you know, is maintaining the status quo. That's why I've put out and I've commented on this uh, in the last few weeks that uh, as much as I really um, don't buy into one part of uh, Ocasio-Cortez's 
a political agenda for the country. I'm, I'm as big of an opponent as can be. The idea uh, that, that she's putting forward of being able to challenge some of these Democrats in primaries, which Pelosi really disapproves of, is really healthy for the Democratic political process. Um, in my viewpoint, the best way to defeat socialists is to have more socialists out there talking about what they want to do to the country so we can understand it. You know, And the more the American people hear Bernie Sanders talk about this agenda, I think the more skeptical they're going to be. I think the Democratic National Committee knows that as well, which is why they've been utilizing every power, every lever of power available to them to attempt to stop his candidacy. And if I were Sanders supporter, I would be outraged with that. Now, I would look for constructive ways to change it. For instance, I would get more involved in the party and have the grassroots more involved in the party so that these things can't happen. In part, that's what's happened here is that the Sanders campaign have organized outside of the traditional apparatuses of the Democratic Party, much like our Tea Party movement organized largely outside of the, the, the formal um, organizational role of the Republican Party and attempted to influence it. But the, the direction that they've taken in clearly bringing their biases to um, this primary are really appalling. And I would be very, very disappointed if I were a registered Democrat in this country with the way they've managed it. Well, i got to be honest, I love asking the questions, teeing it up, and then you just laying it all out for us because I feel like we don't get that full picture anymore and we have to. So, Michael Johns, uh, where can we follow you on Twitter? Follow me on Twitter at my name, one word, Michael Johns, and um, on Facebook at Michael Johns Tea Party. And this might be a weird left field question, but to close up my weekend and then staying sort of on topic of spirituality, don't you feel in a way this presidency has a spiritual uh, component behind it? I feel like it does. I agree with you completely, Alex. I believe it does. Um, I think the odds that this president uh, beat back in 2016 require, required a lot more than an individual or even a movement. I believe that um, for all the personal flaws that one might want to point out about this man, uh, I think he has a heart on the issues that really matter on religious liberty, on, on defense of unborn life that are as strong-willed as any president in our lifetimes. And I think that he is uh, advancing a culture of that. And rhetorically, it's very pleasing to hear from him repeatedly say that our rights come from God. They don't come from government. That is a principle our founders were very adamant about. It was a, a principle the National Tea Party movement's been very adamant about. And I believe it's one this president in his governance has continued to communicate to the American people. And if you don't understand that one founding principle and you believe that our rights come from government, a government that can give rights can take rights away, um, it creates a whole series of very um, unappealing conclusions about the role of government in our lives. So I think this president's done a great job both in his actions and rhetorically in communicating the foundation of our liberty coming from a divine source.
Amen to that. And uh, it is Sunday. So thank you so much for that little wisdom and for clarifying that for those who may not uh, be thinking so clearly. So, uh, Michael, thank you so much. And we will talk to you soon. Great talking to you again, Alex. Take care. Thank you. I'm Alexander Garrett. Have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you soon.